1: Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast, where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Stevie Van Zandt. You know him, of course, from the E Street Band, but there's also the Disciples of Soul and, of course, the Sopranos. Thanks for joining us, Stevie.
0: Hey, my pleasure.
1: So first off, congratulations on the book. It's quite an amazing path that you've been on, and th- and there's so much to dig into. And I have to say, the title of the book, Unrequited Infatuations, is not your average music book title.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I didn't want it to be, you know, the really typical music biography either. You know, I, I was reaching for something bigger than that and wanted to... Um, you know, expand the themes to be a bit more universal. You know, the first half of the book is, is a pretty normal, you know, local Jersey kid makes it to the top of rock and roll, which is Mm -hmm. a good story, you know, in itself. And, um, I don't mean to sound ungrateful about that, but, um, then, you know, really the second half of the book, I think is where it starts to become a bit more interesting. You know, when I leave the band and, and now, have basically ended my life. You know, I, I didn't just change jobs. I, I ended my life and um, started all over again. And everything that I've accomplished in, in the world, basically I accomplished after I thought my life was over, I thought could be instructive for people, you know, who I think it, most people at some point hit the wall, you know, maybe their dream doesn't work out, you know, that first dream or, or you know, whatever they're doing doesn't quite work the way they, they thought it would. And if um, you find a way to move forward, you know just keep moving forward in spite of the fact that you're kind of lost in the wilderness sometimes destiny can uh, surprise you and uh, I think that's you know the bigger the bigger theme you know that search for identity the search for the purpose in life the search for a, a spiritual enlightenment you know I think we all go through that stuff sooner or later so I wanted it in the end to be a bit more universal than just you know than just a music book and I, and just to complete the question uh the long uh, short answer long um you know I, i've had great success um with the street band and sopranos and lily hammer and the sun city project my most personal work uh, has never found an audience that's kind of the part of the title and you know the 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 subtitle i think also matters because i I didn't want it to sound like a negative sort of <laughs> a negative sort of title. So I think the subtitle softened it a bit. You know, sometimes the things we love most in the world don't love us back, mm. uh, you know, uh, and 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 that's the case with my situation where, you know, my, my real personal work really has never quite found an audience. So, but um, I didn't want it, you know, sound like a, no, nothing worse than a whining rock star. <laughs> <You know? laughs>
1: it doesn't come off that way at all. And I'm curious, when did you decide to write this book? And then how long did it take? Because as I mentioned, it, it's a hell of a journey.
0: Yeah, I, I started, I tried it like 10, 15 years ago, and I just couldn't get it together, man. I just couldn't figure it out. I couldn't find my voice. You know, I much prefer, you know, third person biographies, you know, those are my favorites. And, and uh, so, and that's why the the first and last chapters of, of this book ended up that way. Uh that was all I could get away with. <laughs> <laughs> um but I prefer, you know, I prefer biography to autobiography. And so my first try at it I was doing every other chapter, you know, third person, first person, third person, first person, and the first person was like a diary and the third person was the, was the story done done from a from a distance, you know. You know, and it was it was an artistically interesting attempt, but um, I I couldn't really figure out an ending you know and I, I just couldn't figure it out so i put it aside until the quarantine um i got these new managers and they said you know maybe this is maybe now's the time you know and one of them actually suggested uh the ending because I, I told them you know how it would begin and he actually he actually made the suggestion you know let it let it begin with the beatles and end with the beatles you know and then it, then it kind of made sense to me okay you know that's at least some kind of closure you know on that part of my life anyway so that's, that's, you know, I ended up doing it because of the quarantine. If it wasn't for the quarantine, I probably would have never done it, to be honest.
1: Wow, something to be thankful for from that hot mess. <laughs> you know, you write in the prologue to the book about three epiphanies that sent you down the rock and roll road. And you mentioned one just now, which was probably the first epiphany. But can you tell our listeners what those moments were?
0: Um, If I can recall, I think they were probably um, the the day of listening to Pretty Little Angel Eyes by Curtis Lee, I think it was the first I listened to singles in those days. You just listened incessantly. I mean, just, you know, relentlessly. I literally wore out a few singles, which was almost impossible to do, you know, (laughs) physically. But you just keep listening and listening and listening. And um, for some reason, uh, that day, uh, uh, with that record, the Curtis Lee record, basically a one-hit guy, I found out later, happened to be produced by Phil Spector. I didn't know that, of course, at the time. I had this incredible feeling come over me. Uh, Some otherworldly... Uh, ecstatic feeling uh, like the, you know, you, you see described in some religious books as um, you know, as, as like an, an epiphany, you know. I don't know why you know that particular record at that particular time, I, I you know, just no no real control of it, but it was just a feeling of uh, ecstasy and, and, a, and a revelation of the power of music, you know, could just solve the world's problems, you know, in, in some kind of general, you know, uh, feeling uh, I couldn't I probably couldn't even have put it into words. So that was the first one. Um, then the second one was uh, probably seeing the Beatles, I think uh, on Ed Sullivan, which revealed uh, this new world of the of a band. Uh, we had never seen any dance before. There was no such thing really uh, as bands. Uh, you know, we if you went to your high school dance, it was an instrumental group, but you didn't see four or five guys singing and playing. And so all of a sudden, the Beatles literally single handedly turned it into, uh, turned our entire culture into a a band culture. I mean, at that point, if you went out with your friends at night, you either went to the drive in theater to see a movie or, or you went to see a band. I mean, that was it. So the Beatles revealed this new world, but we discovered them halfway through the career and and they were extremely sophisticated by the time we uh, discovered them. Uh, You know, the harmony was just perfect. You know, the hair, the clothes, uh, everything about them was really, really otherworldly. And so they revealed a new world, but uh, you didn't exactly say, geez, you know, I I think I could do that, (laughs) you know. But luckily, four months later, the Rolling Stones come. And uh, that's probably my third epiphany, I'm I'm guessing. And they were just uh, very different. They were very much uh, very casual with the clothes. And, you know, the hair wasn't perfect, except for Brian Jones. Uh, There was no harmony to speak of at all. You know, they were really like the first punk band in in that way of uh, being more accessible and making making it look easier than it was, basically. And so, you know... It was like, well, I don't know if I could do that, but, you know, maybe I I could do that. (laughs) You know, (laughs) and so uh, I always combined the Beatles and Stones as that yin and yang that really, as I say, the Beatles presented a whole new world and the Rolling Stones invited us in.
1: And so the band culture that you mentioned uh, obviously resonated with you and probably still does. Was that hard to find in Jersey at that point or after those moments? Was it everywhere?
0: It became it became everywhere overnight, and I'm I'm not I'm not exaggerating. You
1: know, nobody had
0: a band. Uh, you know, uh, February eighth. You know, and, then, and February 9th, they played a variety show that the whole family watched. And February tenth, everybody had a band in the garage. You know, you know, most of them mercifully stayed in the garage, <laughs> but uh, about a dozen of us got out and started to um, enjoy the freest moments of our lives Uh, of course we wouldn't have known that but there's like three three stages of 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 rock and roll life you know you you have the the teenage years the bar band years and 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 the business if if you get if you're lucky enough to get into the business if 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 there is such a business (laughs) and and what was wonderful about the teenage years is rock and roll was so new you know it was only uh what 10 years old you know at that point so no adult had any idea what you were doing, and 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 they wouldn't have even thought to suggest something to you. You know, like what songs you should play or anything like that. You know what I mean? Because even the even the twenty year olds and twenty five year olds they were in wedding bands. You know, they, that was a whole different consciousness.
1: Right.
0: So if you wanted rock and roll, if you wanted something to do with this new thing called rock and roll. You had to go to the kids. You know, you had to go to. 15 year olds, 14 year olds because they were the only ones who understood it. It's kind of similar to what's going on now actually. A lot of parallels in the two generation gaps, I think. Anyway, so it was kind of the freest you know you'd ever be because once you get to the bar band stage, all, you know, nothing but rules, you know. Uh you you had to play the top 40, you had to look a certain way, you know, all, all of that, you know, which we 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 broke we broke all those rules with Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes and we actually make history that way but we didn't know that consciously at the time but basically the the teenage years were were just a lot of fun and and our generation was just so so lucky i mean we, we were we were the luckiest generation uh, uh i i mean we were catered to like like no other generation has been before or since really clubs were built just for us you know under under 18 you know we had all kinds of beach clubs and high school dances and the vfw halls i mean it was just Uh, dozens of places to play you know it was really really a a wonderful a wonderful time
1: you kind of pulled my next question into two which uh which i find fascinating and uh you're a jersey guy although shout out to boston that's where we are right now because that's where you were born i'm curious like what was the the music scene like at the time i mean it's booming now but then you mentioned and you write about how really you know you kind of changed that whole scene by taking over the stone pony in 1974, I think.
0: yeah, yeah, that was a it was just a you know like most of my life, just crazy circumstance, you know you're kind of planning it but not really you know we were we were encamped in-, in, in the upstage club, which was the other side of town, right We were on the west side of town the clubs, you know, the bars were on the east side of town, right on the right on the ocean. And that's only, you know, whatever that was uh, five blocks away, but it might as well have been east and west Berlin, you know, in the old days. <laughs> um, and so at a certain point, you know, we, we had a different band every three months, you know, basically, and then um, through some circumstance, we ended up deciding we needed to we needed to try and break into the bar scene. Cause that's where the money was, you know, we weren't making much money, but we didn't need much money. Uh, you know, my rent was $150 and, you know, we had like three guys paying it. I think at, at some points, you know, so we were, we were basically paying our rent with food stamps <laughs> and uh, we had, we found a, you know, corrupt deli guy that would give us cash for the food stamp. And and we get a couple of bucks working it Upstage. It's open from eight o'clock at, at eight at night till five in the morning. And if you let, if you led the jam all night, you made $15. If you just jammed all night, you made $5. And uh, that was like three nights a week. So we're living on on that kind of money, uh, you know. But at some point we said, yeah, well, you know, let's try and break into the legit world. Happened to come upon a bar that was gonna close and uh, the roof roof had caved in and, uh, and we said to them, listen, uh, we're not gonna charge anything, but we will take the door and you take the bar and, and um, don't tell us what to play, you know? <laughs> And uh, they agreed, which was the first time I think in New Jersey history anybody played a bar uh, with that kind of freedom. You know, 50 people the first week, 100 people the second week, you know, 200 the third week. Fourth week, they fixed the roof, you know, and decided maybe we're not going to close. And by the end, you know, we had a 1,000 people. They they expanded the club at some point. We had like a 1,000 people a night and uh, expanded to three nights a week. So that was quite a residency, quite a successful residency, uh, a historic really. Uh you know, we're doing like, you know, 3000 people a week and you know, 3 each whatever it was, you know, the richest, you know, r- the richest any of us would ever be r- relative to our overhead, you know. And and at the same time, you know, we had we had gone to see Sam and Dave in this local bar, local club. And and this was like really they were still at their peak. This is, you know, 70 73-ish, 74 somewhere in there. And they were just so incredible just uh, you know, to, just to sit like, you know, six feet away uh, that me and Southside decided we're going to be the White Sam and Dave. And, uh, and of course, I'd already, you know, been a rock guitar player. So we just added the horns and created this rock meets soul thing. And uh, that would start, start to change what bar bands would be after that. Suddenly soul music became part of the, definition of bar bands. We made the term bar band respectable, which it wasn't. It was an insult <laughs> for those who could not make it in the industry. You know, uh, you you would play the top 40 and uh, wear a suit and, you know, uh, you would entertain uh, drunken patrons on the weekend and then go back to your day job. Or if you were a successful bar band and there, was, and there were some, you made a lot of money doing that. We kind of changed that what that whole thing was a little bit Uh, to include soul music and to include uh, music that was not necessarily on the radio. You know, they might've been oldies at that point or, you know, not a lot of original music. I mean, we, we, we throw in a couple of original songs here and there, but we would usually lie about play. I don't want to go home and and say it was a drifter's B side, Mm -hmm. you know, you didn't want to like overemphasize the originality stuff (laughs) that we were already getting away with murder, you know, but we ended up changing the whole fabric, you know, the whole, the whole definition of what a bar band was and, and made it respectable a- after the Jukes came out with the first record, you know, suddenly, um, you see, you see reviews in Rolling Stone and other places uh, for the, the, the bands that came afterwards, you know, you know after, you know, like uh, Grant Parker, uh, uh, Mink Deville, Elvis Costello, you know, and they would have this bar band or, or pub rock thing associated with them. And it was meant in a good way. It was, it was, it was a compliment meaning you know, more of a working-class kind of uh style you know that, that had to do with you know just being close to the ground and and basically being dance bands because you know, we were still we were still a dance band at that point uh, you know making people dance and and uh that was an important factor i think later on when you become a concert band having started out as a dance band you have more energy than 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 most concert bands do i mean because you you needed that extra energy to get them out of their seats and dancing or else you didn't work
1: and i'm I'm glad to say that the stone pony is still around i went down for a surf festival a few years ago and had to go in there and it's it's very cool and very historic you're listening to all music podcasts a member of pantheon media
2: hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds
1: We're speaking with Stevie Van Zant about his book *Unrequited Infatuations*, and it's about this time, relatively speaking, that Bruce Springsteen is in some bands, the Castiles and, and Steel Mill. Was everyone aware of each other in the scene at this time and competition? Or,
0: yeah, um, there was friendly competition in, in the bar, in, in, in the, um, the the band battles uh, of which there was, you know, one at least every month. Of course, my band always won. <laughs> Um, It was friendly though. You know, I mean, we were, you know, if you were in a band, you were friends. And if you, if you, if you had long hair in those days, you were friends. And of course, if you had long hair and were in a band, you were best friends. (laughs) (laughs) You know, (laughs) that's just how it was. Um, There was a tribal, an early tribal thing going on. And the generation gap was intense. You know, we really were an embarrassment to our parents. Uh, Our parents were in a complete panic, not knowing what the hell was going on? You know, they assumed we were drug addicts. You know, we they, they just assumed drug addiction went along with the whole rock and roll thing. Even the long hair thing was all in their minds just completely. Um, you might as well have been a junkie, you know, uh, in the gutter. Yikes. You know, so it was it was a it was a rough, tough, you know, t- time for relationships. And, you know, they would be repaired later on. Uh, one reason why I was really happy Bruce got on a cover of Time and Newsweek, you know, <laughs> my, my mother was like, uh, that's the same guy that used to come over and I try to give him a sandwich because he was so skinny, you know, uh, you know, so that that kind of that kind of snapped their heads, you know, <laughs> it was like, what, you know, maybe there is something to this rock and roll thing, you know
1: definitely is and well you know one of the cool little stories that you mentioned is you went to see Clarence Clemens with Bruce for the first time mm. how was that
0: well you know it was a weird thing me and Bruce just had some things in common that when you think back on it you think really quite odd you know we both had a very similar taste and, and a love for the pioneers I mean in my case I had to learn about it Bruce was a year just a year older but he he was more um aware of the of the pioneers than i was but but slowly we just became uh infatuated with with the with the with that, with the saxophone that was on every single record until really until the beatles you know you know other than chuck berry you know bo dilly buddy holly the, the, the guys that play guitar themselves which was very very few i mean i just probably named you know all of them, <laughs> pretty much. Uh, you know, every everybody else, literally everybody else had a saxophone solo on on, on, the, on a single. And the Beatles, you know, put, you know, 50 sax players out of work. Because after, after the Beatles and, and the British invasion, the saxophone went out of fashion, uh, which is why the Dave Clark Five were never quite respected as much as they should have been, because they kept the saxophone at some point as in, in our in our growth you know you're growing you're you're, you're learning you're you're uh, absorbing various things that are that are building your identity I go through the stages of of what was going on culturally in in great detail in the book Uh, one year. You know, we were very, very much a monoculture until the 70s, surprisingly so. Everybody was into British Invasion in 64. Everybody got into folk rock in 65, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Country rock, blues rock, psychedelic, you know, everybody. And then suddenly in the 70s, it completely fragmented. And, And at that point, you know, you were taking pieces of this and pieces of that to build your own identity. For some reason, We both just were in love with that old honking saxophone thing that, that, you know, we shouldn't have been. And so we went looking for it and could not find it, interestingly enough. Now, just, um, you know, I guess 10 years earlier, it was on every record. Um, But I guess they were just older guys, and the young guys were just not picking up the saxophone anymore. You know, Uh, why would they? So we just kind of were searching for this 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 elusive and magical sound of that wonderful distorted growly you know emotional saxophone that was on every record and 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 the reason why they invented the fuzz tone by the way you know to imitate it uh and um gary talent i think it was said you know I, i knew a guy i played with this band you know a couple times and we went into the, I, to this day, I don't know where it was. It was like in the middle of the woods, somewhere, uh, somewhere in our area. It wasn't too far, but some black club, um, still a lot of, uh, a lot of segregation in those days and, and, and still is tragically. But, but, but in those days, you know, it was very, you know, you were on this side of the tracks in Asbury Park or you were on the other side of the tracks, you, you know, you and this was a black club in the, in the middle of nowhere. I, I still don't know where it was. And we go in, and, and we and we hear the sound. There's that sound, you know. And we go in, and and sure enough, there he is, just like the living embodiment of the entire '50s. And we talked to him during the break, and he and he showed up. We were we, at the at the time we were in a, a, a very brief residency at the Student Prince, which was just around the corner from the Stone Pony. You know, I think we lasted maybe two weeks, you know, maybe, maybe three before we got fired. Uh, I forget whether that was one of my bands or one of Bruce's bands. We were kind of switching, switching off. But anyway, Clarence shows up, you know, and I mean, it's like, you know, 10 people in the club and uh, we just jammed, uh, you know, and, and it was like, wow, you know, there it is, you know, and I, and it's it's odd when I think back on it, you know, why we got off on that so much I can't really explain he, he, he would end up representing tradition and I think me and Bruce really bonded on that particular uh sensibility for some reason you know right. we both had a great respect for tradition and we're not ready to completely give it up which is which was most of the industry was trying to do at that point in the 70s you know you you had the beginning of distance you know the beginning of emotional distance coming in, the, the theatricality coming in, because up until then it had been very, very much an autobiographical art form. You know whether it was literally or not, it seemed like it was. You know, and and, and so you 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 know suddenly theater was entering the picture with, with with David Bowie and 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 Kiss and Alice Cooper and and you know uh, there was a, a a distance starting to happen, and and you know heavy metal was being invented and and singer-songwriters were coming in on the other side of the spectrum uh which was which was traditional in in a folk sense you know but the pioneer tradition so to speak was going away and and for some reason we both wanted to you know keep a one hand on that as we created something new
1: it's interesting that encapsulated a a nice little early history of you know bruce when he got signed to cbs was more of a singer songwriter and then he puts together the first version that had david sanchez and you weren't on that one and then of course born to run which was a whole different thing and you toured behind that album but it's the next album darkness on the edge of town which you said was in many ways bruce's first true album can you explain that
0: yeah, you know, and, and I discovered this as I wrote the book. Uh you know, cuz back when I was making those records, I I really wasn't thinking about this stuff at all. All I was cared about was making a great record. I wasn't I wasn't really thinking of of the big picture. I wasn't thinking of the the content so much, the themes or or any of that identity stuff. Um Bruce and John Landau his his new manager at the time and new producer at the time. They would have endless discussions about that stuff, which I didn't really understand back then. I was just like, let's just make a great record, man, you know, and, and try and continue to make a living <laughs> doing this. As I wrote the book, I started to analyze it for the first time. And it was quite a revelation actually to me to, to, to discover born and run was a a big breakthrough a a huge transformation from his first two records to his third i mean almost unrecognizably so and he created this um character and created this world uh, which was you know urban in some ways um or just suburban in a way uh, trying to be urban you know those kinds of themes going on and and escaping escaping from suburbia you know to some bigger reality and uh got some airplay got you know kind of broke through it wasn't a hit like everybody thought it was but 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 it was really a significant change i mean just the fact that i had joined the band and now he was fronting the band really changed the whole presentation you know the whole the whole uh the whole performance thing became alive you know when you're when you're untethered you know from a guitar wire i don't think they had invented a wireless be <laughs> <mickey> wireless <laughs> yet you know uh you know and, and and so suddenly he just blossomed as this as this incredible front man really out of nowhere so here's this you know pretty dramatic breakthrough i mean you know not the total you know not the total big seller yet but pretty dramatic breakthrough in terms of identity. And he does the most remarkable thing in the world, which is, you know, basically decides that that, that's not who he wants to be. Hmm. It was interesting. It was fun. You know, it was kind of a fictional characterization, you know, but he just decided that's not him. And um, went about trying to figure out who he really was, which would be revealed on Darkness on the Edge of Town. The guy who is not going to run away from town. He's going to stay and fight. He's not going to be unable to relate to his father. He's going to, you know, not quite become his father, but certainly defend him and understand him rather than running away from him. Uh, it, it starts to get more rural now. He moves it into the uh, rural area, to a different kind of setting, you know, a very different setting. And so he completely changes who 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 he was and asked an audience to go with it very very uh, courageous move really and i think luckily of course he comes up with some of his best material which was just terrific and we and we went out and really, really sold it you know i mean which is the, the the band's job you know a song has no intrinsic value until you have, have an audience become familiar with it that that was our job. You know, we still hadn't quite broken through live, but but we're building an audience. We had big help from Frank Barcelona, this incredibly important agent who had become one of my best friends. We were getting a chance to work, even though we were still losing money on the road, but we at least had a chance to work because Frank was bankrolling us. You know, on that tour, we really became a band that was a, a force of nature. And so the Darkness thing was really the, in some ways, I think his, his first album of who he was going to be the rest of his life. And that never changed after that.
1: Yeah, And the E Street Band, I should point out, was blistering on that record. I mean, just the, the guitar sounds, it's just so different from the, you know, the Born to Run with the real big kind of strings and, you know, that kind of thing. And it, it was just amazing, super hot. But, you, you know, uh, you wrote also that The River is your favorite Springsteen album. And Hungry Heart, of course, changed everything. So... Why is that your favorite record? Then I have to ask, is the long lingering rumor that Bruce was going to give that song to the Ramones true?
0: <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know why that, I, I mean, maybe in his head uh, it's possible uh, because we were he was cranking out five, six songs a day at that point. Now, it, it was never going to be one in my mind, I don't think it, it has anything to do with the Ramones personally. I don't. I don't. I can't see them uh, having done it. Um, but I, I was tuned into that thing right from rehearsal. You know, there was something magical about that thing right away, and I recognized it. You know, and so I I I I, I politic for it quite strongly all the way through the process. And in those days, man, it was it was Darwinian. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, look at all those outtakes. Okay, that didn't make it. You know. Everyone a lost argument, you know. Luckily, uh, that one uh, survived uh, long enough to um, become our first big hit. It, it, it was uh, it was a tricky time because hit singles became unhip at, at a certain point. You know, you had to be very careful. At that point, I think it was probably still a bit of the AM versus FM thing on the radio. AM became pop radio, FM became rock radio, meaning they're playing longer songs and the DJs slowed down a little bit, you know, spoke a little slower, you know, and might talk about the record and might talk about who wrote it and produced it, you know. Um, But AM was just like, bang, 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 bang. Still great, by the way. You know, like I say, pop versus rock. Now, if you had a hit single in those days, FM would stop playing you. It was really uh, a dangerous uh, game going on, and so you had to have the right hit single at the right time. And for us, by by you know by 1980, you know 80 whatever it was, 80 81, we built up an audience pretty much as big as we could get them. And um, you know we need, we needed that breakthrough. And so I, th- I think we went from like 300,000 to 3 million. You know, with uh-huh. that one hit single. Uh-huh. You know, that's how that's how powerful we'd built up a, a, the audience by then. You know, in those days, uh, records actually sold. It
1: was nice. That was my first exposure to y'all up here at the Boston Garden, back-to-back nights on the River Tour in 1980, 42 years ago. That's shocking. Mm. Um, But I do have to say, that's one of of my favorite all-time songs is on that record, and you contribute mightily to that, and I've turned a lot of people on to that. And uh, that would be point blank, and your backup vocals just make that song. So that's one guy's opinion. Yeah,
0: thank you. Thank you.
1: We're talking to Stevie Van Zandt about his book, Unrequited Infatuations. So in 1982, you step away from the band to focus on your own project with Little Stephen and the Disciples of Soul. Great band, a couple of great records, and a decidedly more pronounced political course, which would continue to this day.
0: Yeah, I just became obsessed with politics at that point and, and uh, decided to uh, explore my own uh, feelings and and my own art and, and see where it went. You know, I had been satisfying my uh, artistic whatever urges uh, through Southside Johnny up till then writing songs for him. And at, uh, at, at this point, I just said, you know, let me uh, let me write something for myself uh, and see who I am. And um, looking, you know, everybody had a very distinct identity in, in, in the Renaissance period, as I call it in those days. And, and um, so I thought, well, you know, I, I become obsessed with politics. Maybe I'll—that'll I'll, be my identity. I'll become the political guy. You know, twenty-four-seven, not not just with a song here or there, but with complete thematic albums having to do with politics. And you know, became this kind of artist-journalist for a couple of years there, doing lots of research and um, turning them into songs because we work in a storytelling art form. It's not about information; it's about emotional information. That's why I, I would I would I would put a book list on the albums. If you want to learn more about a subject, these books are where they where it came from, uh, kind of a thing. And um and um really with my research into South Africa, uh I kind of made the made the leap from artist journalist to artist journalist activist. It was just so shocking to me. I, I felt I had to do something about that, not just not just write about it, you know, but but actually try and eradicate it because uh is a despicable practice, you know, of a country of, I don't, I don't know what it was. It might've been 30 million people, you know, 26 million of them were black and were not allowed to vote, you know,
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's kind of like, you know, what, you know, the Republicans are hoping now for America, you know, I, when I went down there, you know, it was just, it was just too shocking to, uh, to just write about. So I, I felt I had to do something about it and, uh, that changed my whole, trajectory you know the to, to getting more involved than than i had planned
1: you know. yeah and you're talking about south africa which all leads to sun city which was one of the true flashpoints of rock activism and, and featured nearly everyone from the music industry as well and it was just a huge deal
0: yeah it's just lucky you couldn't do it now you know And <sighs> let, let me just say that everybody was basically a, Arthur Baker's phone book. Okay. Uh, and, and 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 there was very much four of us. And I can't emphasize this enough. Uh, it wasn't, you know, I guess I wrote it and, and conceived it. But, but uh, you know, Danny Schechter was the one who uh, actually publicized it. You know, Arthur Baker, like I said, it was his studio and his musicians and his phone book that's on that record and Hart Perry filmed it. And without any of those factors, no one would have ever heard of it. You know, because um radio wouldn't play it, you know, so so we 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 the only people the only place you heard it was on MTV and BET by the video, uh which uh we got very lucky with Hart Perry and Jonathan Demi and and Godly and Cream uh edited it in that wonderful way. Uh, you know, and everybody just got into it. And it was kind of a new issue for America. That was the that was the challenge. It was different in Europe. They were they were totally into it. You know, the unions and, you know, everybody was really strong uh, about that. But but America was not really an issue. So we had to really work on raising the consciousness of everybody because um, we knew that the home run was going to be the economic sanctions bill that would eventually come. And we knew that Reagan would veto it because he was supporting, you know, white supremacy, as Republicans tend to do. We actually were lucky enough to raise enough consciousness that we overrode Reagan's veto, which was a huge accomplishment. And once the economic sanctions went through, the banks cut them off. They had to let Mandela out of jail and it ended up a complete victory, which is really rare. In international liberation politics, I mean, you know, I spent a good ten years deeply in it, and you know, you get a little victory here, a little victory there, and then you know, you get knocked back, and you know, and uh, and this was a complete victory, you know, which is Definitely. which is you know once in a lifetime,
1: and and a classic song, it holds up very well. Speaking of huge deals, you reached a whole new audience as Silvio Dante on The Sopranos. Was that gig as fun as it looks? <laughs>
0: Um, yeah, I mean, (laughs) you're a little, uh, a little, a little nervous because, you know, it's a whole new craft that I jumped into. It was, uh, it wasn't obviously a hit to anybody as we were making it, Hmm. you know, the pilot just barely got picked up at the very last moment by HBO. Uh, you know, that sat there for like a year. It was a huge, huge expense for HBO uh, and a very, very big risk. Uh, David Chase was at the end of his TV career that had been a, a long time coming, you know, back to Rockford Files and, you know, in the 70s or whatever. So he was not into compromising at all. So it was a weird show, <laughs> you know. You know, I mean, it doesn't seem so now. But but if you compare it to other shows at the time, and you know, if you're clicking around the dial... I mean, Sopranos looks like it looks like a documentary. It looks like, you know, cinema verite. I mean, there's no lighting, you know, no no complimentary lighting going on. Right. There's no s- seductive camera moves. There's nothing, there's too many characters, too many subplots, not a lot of obvious drama. You know, I mean, although there would be some tension between the work life and the family life, which is, you know, I think, how 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 it became so universal. But it was just, it just broke every single rule. So we were enjoying it, you know. And I'm I'm enjoying I'm enjoying learning this new craft every every day. And but it wasn't a feeling like uh, let's celebrate uh, because this is going to be such a big hit. Uh, and 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 plus in, in America, big difference I noticed when I did Lilyhammer in Norway. Uh, you know, we're working like twelve hours a day. You know, I mean, so there's no time to really enjoy life or even enjoy the work that much. I mean, you're you're just working like crazy. And it was just kind of um, almost an experiment in in a way. So you didn't really didn't really feel like, oh, boy, this is going to be a smash. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. just never had that feeling. You know, it's always a little bit weird, a little bit odd, you know, a little bit off to the left. Now, in the end, uh, the audience was ready for something like that, which, you know, you could not have really predicted. And by the second week, third week, certainly by the third week, that's all people wanted to talk about on the street. They were stopping me forget about 25 years of being a rock star <laughs> <laughs> out the window <laughs>
1: see ya tv hall of fame trump's rock and roll hall of fame i guess
0: i mean it, it, tv is amazing i mean it, it really is an amazing powerful force i mean uh, i couldn't believe it and i you know and i i didn't look very similar you know i it took some doing my mother didn't recognize me. You know, she, she, she had to rewind the tape because, you know, she recognized my voice for people to be stopping me. And that's all they wanted to talk about. I'm like, man, we're, we're onto something here. Mm-hmm. You know, definitely. I don't know.
1: Well, there's so much more in your book, uh, you know, to the wonderful work you're doing with education and politics and your behind the scenes work with the rock and roll hall of fame, getting people uh, nominated, but I'm going to tell our listeners to go out and buy your book and read it. Cause there's, there's so much there that we can't get to, but there's a couple of small things that really resonated with me. And the first was your take on MTV, and I'm just curious now with the loss of physical music product, where does that leave the music fan, in your opinion?
0: You know, it's become obviously um, more disposable. You don't have the the, the depth of the relationship uh, that you used to have, for the most part. I'm sure there's some exceptions. You know, there's a Taylor Swift or or some of the rappers or you know some of the country people uh, still have a a long-term relationship with fans but it's really a small group now uh that can achieve that for the most part everybody else is kind of like replaceable it's hard to establish a long-term relationship the the business itself is is just uh, it's not encouraging people to get into it i mean you know, you, you get a billion streams and you get a dollar and a half. You know,
1: it's All like, right. uh,
0: right. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, I know it sounds funny or, or sounds mercenary, but mercenary counts, <laughs> you yeah. know. I mean, you know, most of us got into it for a number of reasons, one of which was uh, it could be a nice living. Not so much anymore. You know, that's what that makes us, you know, in, in the underground garage, my, my radio network and even my record company, we we, cho- we choose to support people who are still managing to do this thing right. with no reward in sight. So, you know, it makes you want to support them even more. I mean, we've introduced over a thousand new bands in the last 20 years. Amazing. You know, can five of them make a living? You know, you know the Hives broke through, the White Stripes broke through, then the list becomes very short. Uh, but we've played a thousand new bands and, and, and they're great. They're playing uh, for one reason only which is passion and you want to just you want to support that you know because uh-huh. it's just uh, you know I, I think the business is is, is, is much much more uh, you know, there's so many more distractions now too I mean there's the, a lot of factors yeah when we grew up I mean literally you know you had three channels on TV and uh, <laughs> you know <laughs> and a radio. And, and 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 pinball machines, you, and, you know. Yeah. You know I mean? So uh, you know, music was just a much much bigger part of your life. And when a band came to town, it was a big deal, because there was no MTV. That's that's the other thing that MTV right. ended, <laughs> which was mystery, you know, and and, and 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 exclusiveness. I mean, you knew when a band was coming to town months before, and and really looked forward to it. You know, it was a big deal. Now uh, people come to you and say, you know, did you see Bob Dylan last night at the, at the garden? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was like, what? You know, <laughs> Bob Dylan was, was at Madison Square Garden last night? I, you know, you wouldn't even know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, it was it's become so weird. You can't blame the kids, you know, the culture. Um, you know, there's always going to be some pop hits. That's always going to be there. And and you hope that that does uh, transform into something that's longer lasting, you know. The pop becomes rock, you know, uh, evolves into rock, you, you hope. In terms of the, you know, the pop rules are different than the rock rules. And, and and we are very much back in a pop era. I mean, I I clocked the rock era from Like a Rolling Stone to Kirk Cobain's death, uh, at, at which time the rock rules applied, you know, a very different set of rules than the, than the pop world, which now we're back in a pop era, probably forevermore. That is a bit translucent, at least, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit, uh it's a bit harder to um to start a relationship with and, mm-hmm. and keep it and, and have that be rewarding, you know, so it's a little bit, it's a, it's more challenging, I think, for artists now, just to, to break through the the madness of the of the of the quantity, you know, the, the, the sheer quantity of things. I mean, uh, that's why you know, my my radio network is, is really appreciated for its curation, mm-hmm. you, you know, you need some kind of curation these days, mm-hmm. or You know, it's just crazy.
1: It is amazing. And, uh, you know, this is my last question. And I mentioned uh, Point Blank. You produced a couple of artists, obviously Darlene Love, also one of my all-time favorite records. And when you talk about passion, Magic Fascic Spirit of Love, that to me is is one of the great albums. And it it combines politics with, you know, the life-affirming songs. I still play that currently and in prep for this. I listened to it twice. I'm just curious how that came about um it was one of those crazy things um
0: i think his name was steve weitzman he ran clubs he helped us establish the underground garage at the village underground before it was a radio format uh, we were booking bands and he ended up managing him somehow and oddly enough it ended up with uh, my friend jimmy iveen's uh, label which was Interscope i think at the time uh so it was it was odd I mean, it was not jimmy's kind of thing to be honest he didn't sign a whole lot of africans for some reason he had signed uh magic and and, uh and uh they came to me and said you know we produced a record and you know i helped out with the arrangements and and uh quite a bit on the title track
1: actually it's a classic you know
0: yeah but yeah it was just one you know one of those things you were friends of friends you know they discovered them they found them
1: well, I'll ask all our listeners to go out and purchase that one, uh, for, for Magic and for Stevie because it, it is really, really good. It combines a lot of the things that you've explored, you know, with just some great music and politics and, and that kind of thing. So I wanna thank you for being on our show and congratulations on your book. It's really wonderful. I loved it. I'll send you a picture of how many post its I put on to do this talk. <laughs> you know, thank you very much, Steve.
0: My pleasure, my friend. Good talk it's you.
1: If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our Deep Dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.